Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas... You will be timed. <laughs> <laughs> you will be right Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> you, you were different. Like you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com We experience reality all the time, yet we struggle to understand it. The first of New Scientist's essential guides does the job for you. Available in print or digital form, check it out now at shop.newscientist.com. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us in the virtual pod today are Valerie Jameson. Val is Creative Director for New Scientist Events. And Bethan Ackley. Beth is a sub-editor at New Scientist. Welcome to you both. Hi, Penny. Hi, Rowan. Hi. Coming up on the show, we look at a possible solution to the mystery of massively powerful radio signals from across the universe. We hear the truth about murder hornets. And in climate change news, we look at the latest on atmospheric carbon dioxide levels. On top of all this, we'll also be discussing how the coronavirus pandemic has led to a second epidemic of misleading scientific information. But first... We're kicking off with music. Rowan. Yeah, let's start with music. Actually, this is the future of music. So a few weeks ago, we had Conrad on the show playing his trombone. Uh, If you didn't hear that, do go back and listen to it. That was an example of a kind of music recording that was the only way to do it for years. Basically, you make a live recording of someone singing or playing their instrument. But all that changed about 40 years ago, and it's about to change again. And it's going to change sound as we know it. This is about the very future of sound and music. So, Beth, you've been looking into this. This is MIDI, right? This is about MIDI. Yep. Uh, This is MIDI, which stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. So um, MIDI was invented in 1983, and it allowed us to encode music digitally. So if you take a song from before then, like These Boots Are Made For Walking by Nancy Sinatra. Great song. Amazing song. Um, So that's a recording of a specific occasion of her singing that song in 1966. It's basically the live recording of her and the band. Now, we play you a clip of this, but we can't because we might get sued. So just imagine the tune. Yep, I'm imagining it now. (laughs) Okay. so with MIDI, uh, we're able to take a song and essentially get rid of the need for physical acoustic instruments. 
Um, so imagine tapping a key on an electric keyboard. Unlike a piano, this doesn't cause a hammer to hit a string to produce sound waves. Uh, instead, information about the key pressed and things like the intensity and the duration of your touch is converted into a digital code, which tells the speakers or the audio software which sounds to produce. This code is called MIDI. And once we had MIDI, we could play a tune on a keyboard and then use that code to make it sound like a trombone or a guitar or pretty much anything. OK, so rather than a sound, you have a digital code that then you can edit and play with. So I, I remember in the 80s, I can remember the 80s. Uh, and I remember, <laughs> yeah, uh, I remember, you know, all the brilliant synth music that came out at that time. And so all of that was because of MIDI. Is that right? Yeah. So there were ways of digitising music before the 1980s, but. MIDI was really transformative in the way that it kind of standardised things and really democratised the process. It had this huge influence and it meant that a single person was suddenly able to compose and record and produce music like in their bedroom if they wanted to. So this kind of fueled an explosion of creativity, particularly in underground dance music, which helped it transform from something relatively obscure into uh, like a real mainstream success. Right. But now there's a problem in that MIDI hasn't been updated in all that time. It's still got its 80s fashion. People are still using the same old MIDI code. Yeah, so it's it's great, but it really does need updating. And we're about to finally get that with MIDI 2. OK, before we hear about that, let's hear an example of one of the greatest exponents of electronic music of our time, Aphex Twin. Uh, if you haven't heard of Aphex Twin, it's not actually a twin. It's a single person called Richard D. James who, like Beth was saying, he started using MIDI synthesizers to make music in his bedroom. And he became an absolute legend. He's a trailblazer. He's a pioneer. I'm a massive fan, as you can tell. It's just, he's just hugely original and creative and influential. And his label, Warp Records, have very kindly allowed us to play a clip of Aphex Twin to illustrate what Beth's been talking about. Take it away. That was a clip from a track called Melt Face 6 by Aphex Twin from the album Drugs. Thanks very much, Warp Records, for that. If that's your first time hearing Aphex Twin, don't be startled. There is a lot more ambient stuff, if that's your thing. Do check it out. Definitely check him out. Uh, we could have chosen something more ambient or any of hundreds of tracks written by Aphex Twin. Um, but Beth, you chose that one. Why is that? So in Melt Face 6, uh, you can hear a sort of slightly out of tune quality that you can probably detect. That is Aphex using microtonality. So microtones are intervals between notes that are smaller than a semitone. So a semitone is the difference between an F and an F sharp, say. Another example of this would be at the beginning of These Boots Are Made For Walking, the descending bass line that descends in quarter tones. So um, excuse my poor humming of this, but... Yeah. You Very nice. Yeah, got it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> 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 Moving on. Um, so Aphex Twin uses microtones a lot and he's had to experiment with his kit to produce them because normal MIDI doesn't really allow it by default. Um, so another song that we can't play for copyright reasons um, that uses this technique is um, How to Disappear Completely by Radiohead. So the opening strings of that song are microtonal and it produces this really sort of beautiful ethereal quality. So Radiohead has massive resources and, you know, access to instruments to record this kind of thing. Um, so they can use that technique in their tracks fairly easily. But anyone hoping to recreate something digitally from their home studio who isn't that technically minded would struggle with that. With the new MIDI, we'll all be able to do it. Yay. So that's going to really change our lives. <laughs> yeah. But 
the thing is, it does illustrate the shortcomings of MIDI in that it is quite limited in how it can express each element of a note or a sound. So the pitch, the volume, the timing, things like that. Whereas the new MIDI should be far, far richer in what it can do. Can I ask you about gamelan music? Because microtones aren't just in modern music. Um, you also get microtones in, in traditional Indonesian music. And one of the really cool aspects of um, the Balinese form is that um, you have all of these bronze drums, but they're tuned at different microtones. And when you play them at the same time, the, the tones that are really close together, they produce this really cool physical effect called interference beating. And, and that causes the volume to sort of oscillate up and down. It's, it's really amazing. And it kind of contributes to this really shimmering effect you get in this type of music. Is that the kind of thing we'll, we'll start being able to do in our own bedrooms if we if we start using this new technology? So, yeah, um, musical cultures that use microtones, so different gamelan styles and a lot of Indian classical music, um, or any any musical cultures that tune their instruments to other than the 12-tone equal temperament, which is the, the tuning that you would find on a piano. These haven't been best served by MIDI until now, but the increased resolution that we're going to get with MIDI 2.0, um, it's going to make it a lot easier to capture those types of music, yeah. Cool. So yeah, this this is going to change your life in a way. It, the music produced with the new MIDI should sound a lot richer and a lot less clunky. Virtual acoustic instruments will sound much more realistic because things like pitch bends can be captured properly. Um, the same goes for capturing the kind of the really small bends in emotional vocals. What is that, the bends? Is that something to do with Radiohead again? <laughs> Not quite. So it's just a slight fluctuations in things like pitch and volume. Um, there's kind of detailed nuances that kind of bring out real character of a performance. Right. Uh, okay, so how else will the new MIDI change our lives? So one area where perhaps the most exciting effects could be felt um, might not be in music at all, but in sound design. So the old-fashioned way of creating a 3D soundscape was to position several speakers around a listener, so like in cinema surround sound. Now, these days you can buy these immersive soundbars that sort of sit in one place in a room and they bounce sound off the ceiling and the walls of the room so it feels like the noise surrounds you fully rather than passing between fixed points with speakers. So the most advanced units you can get with these will fire white noise around a room to sort of calibrate themselves and they can place sound objects at specific points in space. So if you were to imagine like a buzzing bee uh, sort of hovering over your shoulder and then flying off towards the window, you'd be able to sort of trace the path of the sound. Technologies like these could potentially really benefit from the increased resolution in the MIDI update. Okay, I'm totally on board. When can we get it? So it's hard to know exactly when these things are going to come out, but new MIDI 2.0 products are emerging. And it's hard to know exactly what sound and music will be like. But if you think about sort of really bad animation or CG in old films, you know how at the time it would have looked really cool and convincing, but to our eyes now, it just seems awful. Um, we could well look back on music today in the same way. Thanks, Beth. Now it's time for Climate, Hope or Doom, our look at the latest climate change news. Rowan. Yeah, so this is prompted by a couple of things. One is the latest figures on the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. On May the 3rd, it reached 418 parts per million. Uh, we know from samples of air trapped in old ice that before the Industrial Revolution, the concentration of CO2 was about 280 parts per million. That was the level the gas had stayed at for hundreds of thousands of years. And by the way, the level considered safe is 350 parts per million. And we flew past that in 1987. 
So there had been some hope that carbon emissions would drop as a result of all the global coronavirus restrictions and and lockdowns, but we're not seeing an immediate effect on carbon dioxide levels yet. And the worry is that emissions will leap back up again once the crisis is over, basically cancelling out any small gains that we may have made. Yeah, that's the worry. It's a very real worry after the 2008 financial crash. Emissions leapt up by 6% as governments poured money into recovery packages. And this new work out this week showing that huge numbers of people are living in areas that are becoming almost impossible to live in. Yeah, I saw that. The problem is that the land warms faster than ocean. So a global temperature rise of three degrees Celsius, which is actually less than where we're heading for by the end of this century, will in fact equate to about a 7.5 degrees rise in temperature for the average person on the planet. So that will mean more than a billion people, mostly living in South Asia, will be trying to get by in an environment that's as hot as the Sahara is now. Yeah, and they simply won't be able to. And extreme heat events are getting more common all over the world. We saw one in the heat wave that hit the US last July. So many parts of the world are already in this near unlivable temperature zone. So the news this week then seems to be very much a picture of climate doom. It It is, I'm afraid, yes. But I think we have to try and snatch hope from the jaws of doom. With the coronavirus crisis, there's been this remarkable action on a massive scale, on a global scale, and it shows that we can do something. So our job, all of our jobs, is to use what we're doing now as a means to change the way we live. We have to keep the mindset that we have now, the mindset that we all accept right now, that we're in lockdown and we have to change the way we live. Keep that mindset and apply it to the greater threat of climate change. We have to make sure that governments invest in a low-carbon future when we emerge from this crisis. So it is climate doom, but it's also climate hope because we can and we must get something out of this. Time out. We want to tell you about the benefits of a new scientist subscription and a way to get a bargain deal. Yes, we cover some great stuff in this podcast, but we can only scrape the surface of the wealth of amazing stuff you can get with a subscription to New Scientist. The code POD20 gives you 20% off a subscription to New Scientist, and that gets you access to the full range of our content, from movie reviews to puzzles to features and breaking news and hundreds of videos on topics such as people with superhuman abilities to black holes and time travel. POD20 also gives you access to the legendary New scientist archive thousands of stories going back decades on pretty much anything you can think of new scientist is an essential resource at any time but during lockdown and at a time of medical emergency you're really going to want it go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code pod20 at the checkout for a 20 percent discount next up we're going to hear about what has been called the greatest mystery in astronomy this is the phenomenon of bursts of radio waves fast radio bursts, they're called, or FRBs, that we've detected on and off since 2007. Val, you've been excited by these for quite a while. Tell us what we need to know. What are they? Well, fast radio bursts are powerful blasts of radio waves that last just a few milliseconds. We've spotted just over 100 of them now, but in astronomical terms, they're a pretty recent discovery. The first one was detected in 2007 by the Parkes Telescope in Australia. That burst lasted for five milliseconds, to put that in context, that's 20 times faster than the blink of the eye. And in that time, it released as much energy as the sun does in a day. 
Um, even with that limited information, astronomers worked out that it came from billions of light years away, but had no idea what produced it, and it was never seen again. The game changer came a few years later when another burst, first spotted by astronomer Laura Spittler, was seen going off again and again with an intensity of 500 million suns. And that gave astronomers the chance to study one in more detail. Yeah, so I wondered what Laura Spittler's reaction was to this breakthrough. Uh, So I asked her and she said, yeah, it was quite a shock. Uh, Then she said she immediately began discussing with colleagues how to confirm the result and what follow ups they needed. And I like that, that their their first response of a scientist is that we need to learn more. Uh, She said, what still amazes me is that I can detect a flash of radio waves briefer than the time it takes to blink from a source in a galaxy billions of light years away. Yeah, it's incredible when you put it like that. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, they're these massively powerful flashes of radio waves. So the obvious question is, what's causing them? Well, this is the thing, you know, until recently, there were more theories about what they could be than there were actual measurements of them. I mean, the most sci-fi explanation was that there were laser bursts from alien spacecraft. (laughs) Um, But other explanations have been that they are explosions made from collisions between stars or emissions from black holes or even white holes. Up till now, the FRBs that we've detected have occurred outside of our galaxy, but one now has been detected in our galaxy, and it seems to be connected to a kind of star called a magnetar. Okay, yeah, so what's what's a magnetar? Because it sounds like a villain from the Avengers or from X-Men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, they're actually young neutron stars uh, that are the universe's most powerful magnets, generating field millions of billions of times stronger than the Earth's. Okay, so now we have to say what a neutron star is, though. Yeah, sure. Um, So neutron stars form when a massive star runs out of fuel and collapses. The very central region of the star collapses, crushing every proton and electron into a neutron. Now, bigger stars carry on collapsing to make a black hole, but these smaller ones end up as neutron stars, balls of neutrons that are about the size of a small city, with a solid outer crust of iron. And and they're absolutely incredible. A teaspoon of neutron star innards would weigh about a billion tonnes. And they also have extremely strong magnetic fields. The strongest ones are called magnetars. But it's this combination of extreme magnetic fields and the um, surrounding cloud of orbiting debris that can interact in a way that produces these brief bursts of radio waves. Yeah, I read in in New Scientist, actually, that Magnetic fields, they're measured in units called Gauss, and uh, Earth's magnetic field is 0.5 Gauss. Uh, Commercial magnets are 100 Gauss. MRI machines are 70,000 Gauss. But magnetars are 1,000 trillion Gauss. Yeah, Yeah, so these are genuinely extraordinary things made in explosions almost beyond our comprehension and coming from parts of the universe that we would otherwise have no information on at all. And this is another thing that's really interesting about them, isn't it? Because they can bring us information from very distant galaxies. Yeah, the hope is that FRBs will be able to answer some intriguing fundamental questions about the history and structure of the cosmos. And one of the most interesting of these is called the missing baryon problem. We know that just 5% of the cosmos is made of ordinary matter. The rest is dark matter and dark energy. Okay, so baryonic matter is the normal matter that we're all made of, uh, these headphones, this table. Yeah, that's right. But even the ordinary stuff, we've only spotted half of it. And that's excluding antimatter, not counting antimatter in that. 
Right. So the rest of this um, matter, we think, is hiding in vast expanses of empty space between galaxies that are just too wispy for telescopes to detect. But because FRBs make these epic journeys across space, they can probe these regions too, and hopefully they will reveal this missing matter. Is there any similarity with gravitational waves in that they also travel vast distances across the universe? Yeah, sort of. Um, You know, gravitational waves are also fascinating because they give us a completely new way to understand the universe. Radio, optical, x-rays, gamma rays, they're all different types of electromagnetic radiation. Gravitational waves are totally different. It's a totally different spectrum. It's more like listening out for shudders from massive black holes or, or neutron stars that have these are intensely massive. There's a gravitational wave detector called LIGO, which has already spotted two neutron stars merging, and it's capable of spotting merging neutron stars 650 million light years away. And merging neutron stars are still a possible explanation for some of these fast radio bursts. Right, so it's not aliens. We don't think it's aliens. <laughs> it's never aliens. No, it's never aliens. Now it's time for Life Form of the Week, where we celebrate some organism that we're feeling the love for. Although, Penny, this week we've got an animal that people are very much not feeling the love for, but we are. That's right. Uh, This is the Asian giant hornet, which has been rebranded this week as the murder hornet. This name caught on after the New York Times said some researchers refer to the insect in this way. Hmm. Yeah, I've, I've never heard anyone calling it that until now. Um, But the thing is massive and very terrifying, and it's very much got the 2020 vibe. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Rowan, you were once an entomology researcher in Japan. Um, You've had a run-in with it, right? Yeah, once I found a nest of them by a river. I wasn't really sure what it was. I certainly didn't know how dangerous it was. And I climbed up to photograph them, and they started buzzing out of the nest, and I basically jumped into the river to escape and, and held my camera above the water. Luckily, they didn't actually swarm. Wow. They are very scary looking. Uh, it's the world's largest hornet. And the news is that it's turned up on the US West Coast. It turned up in the US in December. And it's not like there's not much other news going on at the moment. But, but for some reason, it, it's become a big news story now. I have to say, I did look into the species a bit myself before going hiking in Japan a few years ago. And to some extent, the danger of these hornets has been overblown. So something like around 30 people a year are thought to die in Japan from giant hornet stings, uh, usually due to an allergic reaction. Um, And that's obviously pretty scary, Um, but it's quite a small number. So around nine people die in the UK every year due to a bee or wasp sting, for example. But you can see why people fear them. They are pretty huge, about five and a half centimetres long. Although I'd say quite a lot of the photos you see of them use uh, an exaggerated perspective to make them seem even larger. Mm. What about the other bit of hype that we've been hearing about that they're going to wipe out honeybees? Because they feed on honeybees, don't they? Yes, um, but that's hardly the top of uh, the list of concerns for most bees at the moment, which have many other problems, lack of food sources, nasty microbial diseases and so on. There are hardly any of the giant hornets in North America right now, and entomologists are keeping a very close eye on the situation. So European honeybees are defenceless against these kind of hornets, but Japanese honeybees have evolved a great defence. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is just phenomenal. Um, So when a hornet invades the nest of Japanese honeybees, the worker bees all get together, they surround the hornet, and they use their body heat to roast it to death. 
So they do this by vibrating their wing muscles to generate temperatures of about 46 degrees Celsius um, for more than 30 minutes. Um, and that's enough to, to roast the hornet and, and kill it, which is quite incredible. Next, Penny, you've been looking into the flood of misleading and low quality research about coronavirus that's been making headlines around the world. That's right. Um, In the latest issue of the magazine, we've published Graham Norton's in-depth look at what the World Health Organization has described as an infodemic. So that's widespread confusion over scientific rumours, preliminary studies and unverified claims. So what's causing the problem? Essentially, it's completely understandable. There's a a new life-threatening virus um, spread around the world, and we still know uh, quite little about it. It's been a real race to try to understand it. People everywhere are desperate for news on how the virus works and details about COVID-19, from symptoms to death rates to treatments. And what that means is that researchers are really rushing to study the pandemic and learn as much as they can, as quickly as they can. But these hurried and preliminary studies they're doing are getting way more public attention than early scientific research normally does. So how is that? Is that because the internet, because the internet, basically? Yeah, that is a really big part of it. So one element to it is uh, preprint servers, which have been growing in popularity for a while now. So these are online repositories that allow researchers to post their early studies online without much vetting or, or peer review. And there are real benefits to this. So scientists can share the results much earlier, um, exchange information, give each other feedback that then improves the overall quality of their work. But these studies are freely available for anyone to read. The issue is that anyone, so that could be a non-specialist journalist, a politician or political agitator with an agenda, a social media influencer, an armchair epidemiologist, any of these people can access these studies and then amplify them to wide audiences without really necessarily having the skills to critically assess the results and determine if they're even worthy of that kind of attention. So it's a nightmare for scientists? Yes, but the scientists aren't blameless either. While it's good to get useful results out to the research community quickly, scientists shouldn't really be posting poor quality work onto publicly accessible websites. That doesn't help anyone, and that has been happening as part of this pandemic. And we've also seen rather a lot of researchers in non-relevant fields, like engineering, for example, suddenly applying themselves to subjects like disease modelling and prediction. And researchers really should know better than to become an overnight expert in an entirely new scientific discipline. Yeah, there's, there is a sense that people are jumping on a bandwagon, a COVID-19 bandwagon. I think a lot of these people are trying to do good work or trying to help, but sometimes it is better to leave it to the experts. And there's been some really bad science bouncing around on social media and then 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 being covered by the newspapers so what is the solution to it all so uh, researchers and academic publishers are looking into various ways to maybe increase the vetting and review and assessment of these preprint studies Uh, But the problem doesn't only affect these preprint servers. Um, So some traditional academic journals have also come under fire for rushing research into print um, as part of this pandemic. And we know that, uh, more generally speaking, plenty of peer-reviewed studies that get published the traditional way still never really stand up to further testing. So it's no guarantee of, of quality. 
to my mind, one of the best fixes really would be uh, for everyone to be able to better recognise for themselves the warning signs that a study may not be all it's cracked up to be. Uh, so this week, we've also put together a list of tips to help anyone make their own sort of quick assessment of a scientific study. OK, uh, give us a couple of examples of uh, the big things we should be looking out for. As I mentioned, um, preprint servers is, is one thing. L- looking at where a study is published, um, so if it's a blog or a Twitter thread or a, a non-peer-reviewed uh, server of some kind, the study might be valid, but it hasn't undergone much vetting yet, so you can you should be quite cautious at that point. Another one we always look for is when a study only has one author, that can sometimes be a warning sign that maybe it's a preliminary or tentative hypothesis, um, a bit of a sometimes a flight of fancy, really, which might have scientific worth, but shouldn't necessarily be taken too seriously. As I mentioned, it's worth looking at uh, the researcher's field of study to make sure that the people who've done that study are actually experts in the area that they're talking about. And then there's uh, lots of other things that we've mentioned uh, in various ways before. So if a study is is very small, uh, really should be taken with a pinch of salt. So generally speaking, anything under 50 participants in a medical study is is highly tentative. And really, you'd want to see at least hundreds of patients or volunteers. It doesn't mean um, the odd case study might, might not be informative, but it's definitely not definitive. And then other things like uh, placebo groups, Um, if studies are published uh, very quickly after an event, then by their very nature, they haven't had much time to sort of validate their work. And one of the real kickers that many listeners will already know inside out is that correlation doesn't imply causation. So many factors can be linked without one causing the other. And and even in studies where they say we took other factors like age or wealth or sex into account, Yes, they might have taken it into account, but that doesn't mean their analysis has actually fully removed those effects. So um, there can always be confounding factors that might actually be the, the real heart of the matter. Thanks, Penny. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guests, Valerie Jameson and Bethan Ackerley. And thanks to you for listening. Do tell your friends about our show. Remember, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com. And there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. Yes, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also listen to our sister podcast, The Big Interview. Coming on Monday is a fascinating interview with novelist Philip Pullman. Do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcasts at newscientist.com and let us know how things are for you at the moment. New episodes go live each Friday. Do subscribe to our show at all the usual places you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. 
ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>